0: Welcome to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, Episode 013, Homer's Iliad, Book 3, Part 2. Um, last time we were talking, we um, jumped into the intro to Book 3. We talked some about the strife between Menelaus and Paris. We talked a little bit about their differing attires and their differing mentalities and what that represents about the Achaeans and the Trojans at large. Uh, we noted the first Homeric similes. Uh, we noted that... Um, humans become less distinguishable, not more distinguishable, as I think I accidentally said, from animals um, yesterday. So humans become more like animals during the war and thus bear more descriptive similarity to them through the Homeric similes. Um, Often there'll be lions, boars, birds of prey, um, and occasionally they'll do some very interesting things. Something that's often mentioned as a rather funny note is that the lions are sometimes described as biting the heads off of creatures and then gulping down their blood because there was um, an ancient belief that that's how lions ate. And, well... uh, I think that just bears some wisdom that um, they they didn't know lions well enough to know how lions would rip their limbs off, and so that's great. Um, And so I find that funny and interesting uh, to hear. So... Today, what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to start with a small correction. When Hector walked out onto the battlefield at the request of his cowardly brother, Paris, yesterday, I said that you should imagine that this was an act of bravery on his part because um, stones and spears could still be thrown at him. Well, in fact, they were. If we look at line eighty to eighty-five, lines eighty to eighty-five or so. In Book 3, we see in the Lombardo translation again, and I promise I will get the Lattimore at some point, but I often leave it at school. Hector liked what he heard. He went out in front along the Trojan ranks, holding a spear broadside, and made them all sit down. Greek archers and slingers were taking aim at him, and already starting to shoot arrows and stones, when Agamemnon boomed out a command for them to hold their fire. Hector was signaling that he had something to say, and his helmet caught the morning sun as he addressed both armies. He shines like a star, essentially. But what you for sure notice there is that the Greek archers were already shooting at Hector, so he really had to take a risk in order to stop the battle, but it is to his best interest and to the best interest of both camps. And I don't know that I closed that argument yesterday. Why is Paris offering to fight against menelaus a win-win for everybody because no everybody knows paris will lose even though even if paris won that would be a win for everybody but paris will clearly lose because menelaus is so much better than paris and that is a win for troy and that is a win for the achaeans because they get to go home and they get the spoils and the trojans get to continue living and they have the most shameful person who caused the war killed it would It would be a major victory for them to see paris die without any additional bloodshed and every single one of them is aware of that by the way as they would be so agamemnon stops the achaeans from firing hector comes forward hector gives paris his challenge out along the battlefield Hear me, Achaeans, this is a paraphrase. My brother, Paris, calls Menelaus to arms to fight for the hand of Helen. Winner take all. Loser, go along his way. And there be no bonds of en- enmity remaining amongst the Trojans the Achaeans. Menelaus immediately accepts, and the war will be over after one of these men dies. And, well, this does seem like a personal conflict, being as one of these men stole the wife of another, and so it does seem very reasonable that a duel amongst the two of them, rather than a massive war between two peoples, occur. And so, they prepare to fight. But before they fight, we get something of an episode shift, a scene shift. We, we find ourselves for the first time in Troy, above the wall, where the elders are sitting together, Priam and Antinor in particular. Antinor, who will give his name to Antinor in the Inferno. And so Priam, sometimes called Priam by those with more British proclivities, um, he, he summons... Well, first he's talking with Antinor, and he, he summons Helen as he must have summoned her when the Achaeans first showed. And he asks her for a description of the men. But something I always share with my students, and what I would like to share with you, is something I would say is sort of funny. When... As Helen is walking towards these two old men, and they're now very old, and Priam has, by legend, 19 children, I think even sons, by his wife Andromache, or excuse me, Hecuba, uh, Andromache is Hector's wife, but also 31 other ones, and I think 50 daughters as well, because it's said that he has 50 halls for his daughters and their husbands. Um, so he's, he's, uh, he's been fairly productive with his life, and one might imagine that the beauty of Helen would have lost its effect on someone who had been so successful. And so, well, that's not the case at all. Actually, Priam and Antenor sort of devolve into sort of joking, churlish young men. And, well, such were the voices of these Trojan elders. Sitting on the tower by the western gate, when they saw Helen coming, the rasping whispers flew along the wall. You notice that they feel the need to whisper. Who could blame either the Trojans or Greeks? For suffering so long for a woman like this. Her eyes are not human. And then, also, whatever she is, let her go back with the ships and spare us and our children a generation of pain. And so, a couple things there. first thing is that you notice that her beauty is not lost on anybody. And even the people you would most expect beauty to be lost on, especially in an erotic fashion like that, It's not. That's how beautiful Helen is. So we should keep that in mind when we judge Paris and not be overly hasty. Because apparently what Helen sort of represents for him is the conflict between culture and nature. Because on the one hand, he should be above his brutish nature and forget about Helen. Because she will cause his people to die. Which is bad because he's a prince. But on the other hand in terms of nature she's the most beautiful woman who exists and therefore confers the highest status which can exist to Paris he who is with the person whom every man desires and so from a natural biological level he's very much conflicted with his cultural with his cultural duties Even though if he thought it through, evolutionarily speaking, it doesn't matter how beautiful she is if they all die because of the Achaeans. Well, perhaps this shows just how powerful nature can be that he chooses against reason and his own people because of the imposition of the effect of nature on him. And his utter amazement in its wake, but then perhaps we'll see other examples of individuals like Hector who can somehow rise above that. And a, perhaps another open question you might be, as you might be asking, is does this draw a parallel between Paris, who is subject to his desire, and Achilleus, who is subject to his rage? Um, and I would say that perhaps you'll see a parallel to any person who becomes overcome emotionally in this text, and surrounding the text dais, the greater's actions afterwards, and and certainly Agamemnon will find himself subject to emotion on multiple occasions and act in accordance with it and be lucky enough to have brave and noble advisors who will steer him towards uh, the middle way, you might say, a less extreme way. Something uh, Agamemnon's going to do is he, he's basically going to suggest that the Achaeans run away multiple times in earnest as opposed Uh, in conjunction with uh, the time he suggested in, in jest from yesterday. So, Helen is summoned to Priam, and something about Priam is that he's very gracious to Helen, just as Hector is. And in fact, Hector has often... Helen will explicitly say at Hector's funeral that he was the only man that was ever always nice to her. And you might consider him as the person who has everything to blame her from, because, or for, because she will result in the death of his wife, son, mother, all of his good brothers, even his bad brother, and his kingdom. Oh, and his child too, of course, in very dramatic fashion, Astyanax. And yet he's kind to her, and so perhaps he shows the opposite of Paris in that... Though he has every natural reason to see her as a threat and as something worthy of disgust, he treats her like a human instead. Perhaps that's what Paris and nobody else does. They treat her as a figure of the feminine rather than as an individual. And you noticed the attention being drawn to her eyes or her eyes are incredible because they see so much, which means that she has an extraordinary individuality and not simply uh, sort of the the soulless generality that one sees in a Greek statue now deprived of the painting on their eyes with those vacant stares they have. And so all the more tragic that she finds herself locked within this role of representing the eternally sought-after feminine when she is so incredibly individual and capable of such differentiated thought and perception. She'll even show this in her her administering of Egyptian drugs in the Odyssey, which essentially suggests that she's acquired the wisdom of the Egyptians, which means, as far as the Greeks were concerned, she's received the most ancient wisdom that exists, which means, well, she's very wise. So Priam, he invites Helen over and he makes sure to say to her explicitly that he doesn't blame her for this war, but he blames the gods. And that's a very kind thing for him to say because he's the only person who says that. As you heard from the whispers, everywhere Helen goes, people talk about two things. How beautiful she is, her eyes, and the fact that they wish she wasn't there. So she gets negative emotion everywhere she goes, even though she's so beautiful, thus suggesting the question that would one really want to be that beautiful at all? And perhaps if you think of Achilles as an exemplar of being that strong, would you want to be that strong given how he acts? And if you take Agamemnon as an example of being extraordinarily wealthy and you see how he acts, you might wonder whether that's something you really want too. So Priam sits with Helen Says he doesn't blame her Um, Oh yeah, about her eyes, just to mention that very quickly The reason why her eyes are so focused on Besides the fact that she's perceptive Is that she's obviously always looking around Because she sees people whispering wherever she goes Which makes her highly alert and attentive And so she really does have the most brutal mistress to her wisdom because it is through the negative effect she has on others and therefore their threatened glares that they give to her that she learns the wisdom of people and how how people turn on you due to the well in this case due to the decisions you make um That's something that Paris seems to be fairly immune to. You might imagine that nobody likes him either, and yet, well, he's got Helen, so he seems to be fine. Okay, so, Priam asks about the Achaeans. And, well, as you might expect, who does he see first? Well, he sees the man that looks most kingly, just like him. He sees exactly through the lenses that he's always worn. Priam is king. He looks for the king. Who does he see? The most royal-looking man. And Helen, oh, she says, well, that is a good fighter. And king, that is Agamemnon. And so the next thing you might imagine is, who is it next a king would look for? And you might imagine that that would be answered by the fact that Zeus, king of the gods, bore Athena from his own mind. Which means that she is the implementer of his strategies in the world. Even though she explicitly serves Hera. But you'll understand that that means that Athena ensures that Hera's plans are in accordance with Zeus. Though perhaps that won't always be the case in the Iliad. We'll have to keep our our eyes open for that sort of talk. Perhaps that's a theory. So, Who is the equivalent to Athena on Earth on the Achaean side? Well, that would be the most cunning of the Achaeans, though. The most actively intelligent, well, that's Odysseus. And he's described as a ram amongst sheep. That means a man amongst women. That means that he's moving more, that he's bigger, that he's more active, that he looks more dominant. There's something about him that rings dominance. And what is that? That he's aware. He's keeping track of everything that's happening. He's clearly full of potency because he's using it in those moments. And in this moment, Antonor, greatest advisor to Priam, parallel to Nestor, he uh he decides to pipe up and he says, Oh, Odysseus, Odysseus, oh yes, 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 yes. Um, I remember when Odysseus and Menelaus first came here, when the ships first came and they demanded Helen back. And so when they came, it was interesting because there was the one man, Menelaus, he tall, red headed, broad shouldered man, and then Odysseus, a little shorter, broader shoulders, like a wrestler. And Menelaus he spoke, he spoke very intelligently when he spoke to us and demanded Helen back, and we, we all approved of how he spoke. But as he spoke, we saw, we saw this Odysseus fellow, and he was and he was just holding his staff and staring at the floor, and we all thought he looked rather rather dumb. We thought he frankly, he looked like an idiot, and um, but when he spoke, his words were as soft and as sweet as falling snow. So how gentle is falling snow to the touch, and how beautiful. Is it as it covers a yard or a mountainside? It is of apex-level beauty, like staring at the stars from a canyon. And so what is being said of Odysseus' intelligence, the thought he puts into his speech and his manner of speech? That it is masterful in all ways. And so we see again that the capacity for ordered speech is held in high regard, the highest regard, by those who were the Achaeans, and by Homer as well. And so next, Ias the Greater is described, and you might, you might understand that his description applies to Achilleus too, he's tallest and most beautiful, And it's just a real physical specimen. And so you might imagine that the order in which Priam sees these men illustrates the rank that these men hold in the eyes of a king, perhaps even the eyes of the gods, because, well, the king rules and is therefore most important. And that's the reasoning of Nestor, and that's obviously the reasoning of Olympus and the world, because they have kings at that time. King equals most important person. But most important ability is not possessed by the king, but rather by someone like an Odysseus. And Odysseus, you'll notice, is not simply some advisor, but he's an active agent within the world. He's just someone who gets things done. If you have ever seen a James Bond movie, it's like the number two to a villain that you see running around, like the guy with the, who threw the hat. Uh, that kind of guy. Though I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they, he, and Odysseus look exactly the same. Odysseus didn't wear a suit, and so the second grade, or the greatest ability seems to be wielded by somebody lower in rank than the king. The king has to exist in order to be king, to be the most important person in the society. But that doesn't mean that he has to have many abilities. Um, obviously, he needs to lead effectively well, but he needs people on the ground. Producing and working hard to maintain the stability of his unity, of his unified force. And Odysseus is the one who does that. And he does it with actions and with words. And in fact, his words are so persuasive that they're like actions because they move other people. They're motivating. And the third greatest thing you need, well, you need some big, strong guy or some big, strong guy amount of guys at your back and then boom you can win and something to say about the difference in sizes between the achaeans and the trojans is (coughs) and so again not sorry if we got cut off just we were saying that agamemnon and insisting that priam come down to make an agreement with him rather than accepting Hector's agreement. He both insults Hector, asserts his superior rank to Hector, and asserts that he is like Priam of rank of king. And something about Priam is that Priam is a king of many nations at this moment because he summoned the allies of the Trojans and they all listen to him. In fact, there are the Dardanians there who are subject to Aeneas, and there are the Lycaeans who are subject to Sarpedon, and there are many different languages spoken. Amongst the Trojans, because of their Asiatic origins. And so Agamemnon, in suggesting that he is of that high rank, possibly has something to do with the genesis of the nation of Greece or Hellas as a whole. And so in the next episode, we'll finally get down to the fight between Paris and Menelaus and see the outcome, see the after-effects, and get to see a little uh, marital, marital tiff between Paris and Helen. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. Please download the Anchor app. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to my show, share it, call in. Um, And I'm loving this, and I'm looking forward to finishing book three with you. Have a great day.